0: This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Who Gave Chekhov a Gun?
1: Everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gopin, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! This is one of the stupidest things I've ever seen.
0: Uh, Now, now, uh, we've seen some pretty stupid things on this show here.
1: I mean, I will say, (laughs) I am very much not a fan of westerns of this era
0: they have a certain i guess vibe to them and this episode really does hit that same vibe so it
1: does a bit my my dad's favorite show growing up was a contemporary show to star trek called the rifleman and he showed me a few episodes when i was a kid and it was the most Boring thing I remember watching in my entire life. The whole concept of the show was this guy had a specially modified lever-action rifle that let him rapid-fire, and he used it one time in four episodes.
0: Well, you know, you can't have the the magic gun show up all the time. You have to have some suspense, right?
1: You named the show after the gun. (laughs) It's like Chekhov's gun, but bad
0: but not as effective
1: (laughs) anyway we are watching an episode called specter of the gun apparently not to be confused with the more recent arrow episode the specter of the gun
0: hmm i wonder where they got the name from
1: (laughs) yeah well i saw that arrow episode it's actually also very bad
0: oh dear so
1: Hmm. apparently this name is
0: cursed (laughs) <laughs> so, uh, note to self, never name anything Specter of the God. Got it.
1: This episode was written by our good old friend Lee Cronin. Wrote uh, Spock's Brain, also known as Gene L.
0: Coon. So, we got a uh, uh, the pen name here to uh, cover up the, uh, uh, the, the, the writing victim, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, the Writer's Guild shenanigans. Though, I'm not sure, because... He has written some legitimately good episodes in the past. Apparently, writing under a pseudonym has sapped all of his power.
0: Maybe it like, uh, it's like, well, if I'm not going to get full credit for this, maybe I should just not try it all. So, you know, he wrote The Taste of Armageddon, which is like my favorite episode, The Devil in the Dark, also awesome. Um, but he also wrote Metamorphosis, which is dull as dishwater, but you know... <laughs>
1: Well, we've got a few actors to cover in this one because we have more supporting cast than normal, but I'm going to summarize the next uh, four of them by just saying that they all appeared in contemporary Westerns and a few science fiction shows, but we have a lot of Western people showing up in this episode because it is a Western.
0: Like, oh, it's uh, that guy from Gunsmoke or, you know, the other one.
1: (laughs) So, Ron... Sobel plays Wyatt Earp. Charles Maxwell plays Virgil Earp. And Rex Hallman plays Morgan Earp.
0: You got three Earps.
1: Yep, the three Earps. As well as Sam Gilman playing Doc Holliday. And if this is beginning to sound familiar, it's because they've made way too many movies off of this idea.
0: Uh, the, the, I guess the early famous one is Gunfight at the OK Corral. But that wasn't the first movie. Even, so.
1: No, also... Um, <laughs> I forget if it was that one or the slightly earlier one, one of those uh, OK Corral adaptations that filmed about five years before this episode also starred Dr. McCoy as one of the herps.
0: <laughs> Whoops, uh, I guess he's going on both sides this time. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Man, I'm, I'm now looking at a list of uh, adaptations of this, you know, Law and Order was apparently one of these, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Gunfighters, Hour of the Gun, Tombstone, uh, Wyatt Earp, uh, The Gunfighters, A the Gunfight of the Okai Crow, Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp, uh, My Darling Clementine, Tombstone of the Town, Too Tough to Die, um, Tombstone, Rashomon. <laughs> so there's been a lot of adaptations.
1: <laughs> we also have. We're on to, we've got a few other people who were background characters. Uh, Charlie Seal played Ed the bartender, Bill Zucart played Johnny uh, Beham, who was a real life sheriff of this town in Arizona.
0: A lot of sheriffing he did this episode, didn't
1: he? Yeah. (laughs) Known for his opposition to the Erps. And we also have Bonnie Beecher playing Sylvia, who is the love interest in this episode. She was a singer and actor that first appeared in the Twilight Zone episode, Come Wander With Me, retired fairly early on and became an activist.
0: She was also in Goodspoke.
1: And finally, Abraham Sofer is the voice of the aliens of these episodes. And he also showed up earlier as the voice of the alien in Charlie X.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, we got a uh, another all powerful uh, alien. I guess this guy's now typecast as that. By the way, he was at Rawhide and Gunsmoke. Yeah, everybody <laughs> was
1: in. Everybody was in fricking uh, westerns. Like DeForest Kelly's entire career before Star Trek was westerns, which is why he was in one of these movies. I think he played. I think he played Virgil Earp, if I'm remembering correctly. I would have to look at that casting again.
0: Give me a couple more seconds. I can uh, I can figure this out. Uh, Morgan Erp. He's Morgan Erp.
1: The Erps. Uh, we'll talk a lot about them later, but I suppose we should just jump in. This is a fairly difficult to explain episode.
0: Okay, let's let's roll. We start with a red alert, don't we?
1: Basically, the Enterprise is being chased by something. The object is chasing down the ship. It matches its course and speed. Kirk eventually orders a full stop and the alien object approaches the ship announcing itself as a Melkot probe and warning them that they are not welcome in Melkot territory and they should turn around and leave at once. Every crew member reports hearing this message in their own native language. Though Vulcan, English, Russian, and Swahili
0: Oh, uh, apparently they have some sort of device that allows them to uh, affect people's minds directly.
1: Hmm. Yes, this is a telepathic probe.
0: Guess there's technology for that now. Okay.
1: (laughs) Kirk and everyone have decided that, in fact, it is super, super important, like, upon pain of death, apparently, that they make contact with this species no matter what they say about you know, borders and respecting other cultures and all that jazz. So they ignore the warning and move straight on to the Melcon homeworld.
0: Well, uh, I guess we don't have to worry about, um, you know, not violating their laws now because we've now violated laws. I guess we trash the place, guys. Kirk,
1: Scotty, Spock, McCoy, and Chekhov, a weird away team configuration, beam down to a foggy landscape with absolutely nothing in it.
0: It's like that one planet with the Galileo 7.
1: None of their equipment works. They, they, they can't find anything. They can't see anything. McCoy is somehow convinced that this means the transporter broke. So I'm not sure where he thinks they are. Dead?
0: Maybe... They've been uh, beamed into hell.
1: Suddenly, a Melkoshian appears. It's an fa- interesting, large, floaty alien.
0: Yes. Um, incoming message from the giant floating head.
1: Yeah, it's not. It's not just a random dude this time. So okay.
0: Yeah, that's an improvement.
1: They uh, condemn the crew to death for trespassing, which they told them not to do.
0: So uh, yeah, the, the aliens are totally the right here, guys. <laughs>
1: And apparently because Kirk is their leader, his mind will be the framework for their execution. Whatever that means.
0: Don't think about the Stay Puft March all, man.
1: Yeah. The crew suddenly find themselves in about one-fourth of a western town.
0: Literally. the uh, The buildings are, like, just the fronts and, like, some stuff inside, but not the entirety of the building.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is, like... The end of Blazing Saddles when they ride into the town and discover that it's all just facades on a soundstage. Yep.
0: (laughs) And uh, nobody here really questions that, but you know.
1: Yeah, most of the buildings have one wall with a door in it. You can very clearly see the corners of the room they're standing in. there's, There's like paintings and clocks hung on trees.
0: Yep. (laughs) It's very silly. It's
1: awful. All of their phasers have suddenly been changed out for six guns.
0: Oh no, Chekhov's got a gun!
1: (laughs) He has to use it by the end of the episode, or we'll be disappointed. (laughs) They remark on how this is probably the Melkots' interpretation of the Old West, or at least as much of it as they need.
0: Or maybe... Maybe it's just all Kirk sort of thinks about the Old West.
1: Yeah, it's not at all that we ran out of budget for this episode.
0: You know, all the money for the guest stars, but nothing for the sets, you know.
1: A very convenient newspaper informs them that they are in Tombstone, Arizona, on October 26th, 1881. A date that they all seem to think is somewhat familiar somehow in some way.
0: Yeah, uh, McCoy's like, maybe it was in a movie that took place on that day Hmm.
1: a dude dressed like a sheriff approaches them and addresses them as ike frank billy and tom after leaving the crew all confused kirk realizes that the names the man used for them are the same names of members of the clayton gang who famously lost a gunfight to the erp brothers at the ok corral in tombstone arizona on october 26th 1881
0: It's uh, good that Kirk remembers the exact date off the top of his head.
1: I know, for, like, (laughs) I guess because they made all those movies. Yeah. (laughs) There is a commotion from a nearby saloon door, not a saloon building. A man stumbles out, only to be immediately shot by a man in black wearing a badge. The crew run over. McCoy announces that despite it's impossible that these people are real, this is definitely a real dead dude.
0: So this is getting kind of weird, Um, so we have to watch out for bullets. Got it.
1: They enter the one-fourth of a saloon, and everyone (laughs) addresses them as if they are members of the Clayton gang. Chekhov is immediately approached by a young woman who's named Sylvia, who starts kissing him and identifies the man in black as Morgan Earp.
0: Wait a moment. If we're the Claytons and that guy's Earp, and he just shot a dude, it's all coming together, isn't it? We're going to be murdered by this guy, aren't we? Yep.
1: Erp confronts <laughs> them, but decides that five on one is not good odds and leaves to go get his brothers. Uh, the crew spend a bit discussing their options because this seems to be a replay of historical events and they're unsure whether or not they can change them. Kirk decides to try to get the bar owner to accept that he is not, in fact, the man he appears to be, but this is taken as a joke.
0: Like fact, this is kind of running gag for the rest of the episode. It's like, oh, you guys are just making weird stuff. Stories up now.
1: Kirk decides that the best thing to do is to go try to talk to the Earps directly. He tries to reason with them in the marshal's office, but they will have none of it. Also thinks that he's joking. Threaten him with guns. And annoying, they tell him that he and the gang have until five o'clock to get out of town or they will be shot immediately.
0: Well, this seems a little harsh. Um... Can we just give up our weapons? And so then if you do shoot us, it's going to be straight up murder for sure?
1: No, we'll probably get to that <laughs> later. Back in the saloon, they continue trying to formulate a plan. They have no way to change history as far as they can tell. And there are no materials in this time period that would allow them to make a communication device to contact the ship. Uh, do they think they're back in time or not? Because what's with the? Sh- eh? they wouldn't be able to communicate with the ship if they were back in time but they should be able to change stuff if it's just a simulation of back in time.
0: Yeah, so they're not really firmened into a a comprehensive view of what the situation actually is at this point. They're just sort of like,
1: Kirk decides that what they should do is try to leave. Seems sensible for once. But they find that the edge of town is guarded by a force field.
0: Hmm. Failed again.
1: Needing a new plan, they just try to figure out what might be on hand, but they can think of nothing that would be in a desert except for snakes and cactus. Then Kirk goes, Snakes and cactus? McCoy, can you make a tranquilizer? McCoy says, Yeah, but out of other things, unrelated to what you just said.
0: So, um, uh, thanks for the inspiration, but yeah, we're going to go with something actually going to work.
1: <laughs> he runs off to the dentist's office to find chemicals.
0: wonder who we might run into at a dentist's office.
1: Here he finds a man at work on another man in a chair. Uh, McCoy asks if he can have some chemicals that he needs for an emergency, and the supposed dentist tells him that he'll need to ask the dude in the chair who actually owns this establishment. He stands up to reveal he's all in black and has the same... Dumb, intense, I-don't-know-what-they-were-directed-to-do look that all of the Erps have. They basically just stand and stare. It's weird.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, just a, just a envision that you're murdering this person constantly. And that, I just kind of go with that vibe.
1: He introduces himself as Doc Holliday and tells McCoy that he should take the stuff, but that soon he will shoot him with this gun. It's just an awkward Why? line. He's like, soon I'm going to shoot you. With this gun. It's like, oh, I'm glad you specified which gun with which you were going to shoot me. That was helpful. Thank you.
0: Wait a moment. If you steal all their guns, can they not shoot you then?
1: Yeah. He can't shoot you with another gun. He just said. Yes. (laughs) Outside, Chekhov is getting distracted by Sylvia, who's talking about looking forward to some sort of dance and how they should just get married. Lovey-dovey junk. Then Morgan Earp shows up. Apparently because he wants to be with Sylvia instead of Chekhov. He pushes Chekhov and grabs Sylvia. When Chekhov gets up to confront him, Earp just shoots him dead.
0: So, uh, Chekhov's dead. One down. Yeah, I guess he didn't get to use his gun then. It's
1: just in time for the rest of the crew to run up and find Chekhov dead. Erp and his brothers challenge them, but Kirk orders them not to draw their weapons, even though Scotty's like, no, let me kill people. Kirk's like, no, we don't kill people.
0: Uh, Scotty, you might be the most competent person on the ship, but you are a little burner happy some days.
1: The Earths again give them until five o'clock to leave the town, or they will all be shot.
0: Can we just stand at the edge of town and look like we're walking away? Maybe that will work.
1: <laughs> yeah, just stomp more slowly, walk behind a building and do the go down the stairs routine.
0: Here I go. Out of town. We're not here anymore.
1: Back in the saloon, they sit working on some sort of tranquilizer grenade that they're making out of a can of beans. Hmm. Everyone gets upset that Spock is not grieving Chekhov enough. They do this a lot. They're like, something bad happened, and we're in a life-threatening situation that we're actively trying to deal with, but Spock isn't sad enough.
0: He's not letting the emotions that we're all feeling affect him, and thus he is the bad person here.
1: Then Spock just goes, oh, they forget that I'm half human. And then they all shut up and go, oh, you were jerks.
0: I guess he does feel it. He just isn't letting it out.
1: But then Kirk realizes that Chekhov was named as Billy Claiborne in this recreation drama thing. And Billy Claiborne lived.
0: That means we can change the future. Chekhov's still dead, but you know.
1: Yes, this history is different.
0: There's a way out of this.
1: So he decides that he's going to confront the town sheriff into doing something. The sheriff won't do anything. Kirk eventually winds up just grabbing him, pushing him against a building, and going, But I can't be violent! Well,
0: good. I guess you're um, not showing that very much right now, but okay.
1: There's there's several times in this episode where Kirk is going like, no, we are non-violent. I won't kill anyone. Well, he's like actively slapping someone around.
0: Yep. We'll just hurt them a lot. We're not going to murder anyone. Kirk comes back into the saloon where
1: they've finished making the knockout bomb. Spock is completely confident that it will work flawlessly because that's how they built the thing. Stands to reason. But they've Decide that relying on an untested invention is a little nerve-wracking, so Scotty volunteers to get knocked out to test the thing.
0: Scotty's the one who can hold his liquor the most in this uh, group, isn't he? They're testing it on him.
1: I guess he'll wake up faster. Okay. (laughs) He steps away and activates the gas grenade, breathes it in really deeply, and puts it right up to his face for a long time. Nothing happens.
0: Well, I guess we're screwed then. Um, You guys uh, want to like write out some wills while we have a few minutes left?
1: (laughs) Spock is super confused because it's impossible that this thing wouldn't work. Like actually physically super impossible. But they don't have time to worry about that because it's five o'clock. And despite Kirk's insistence that they are not going to move, they suddenly find themselves at the OK
0: Corral. So I guess uh, the option to hide doesn't work either.
1: So everyone's freaking out. Because they don't have a way to win this fight and they're all going to die. But Spock's really calm. Because he's decided that none of this is real.
0: Well, That's good to know. But what about the rest of us?
1: Yeah. So apparently the logic goes that their bomb thing should have worked. But it didn't. Therefore, the natural laws of reality don't apply. So the only things that can hurt them are things they think can hurt them, like bullets. Even though Scotty thought that he would be knocked out by the gas thing.
0: So, I guess maybe it's very selective? Yeah. Or maybe Scotty was distracted at the time. I don't know.
1: (laughs) Uh, McCoy says that they're humans and they can't just decide bullets aren't going to hurt them. So Kirk orders Spock to mind meld with everyone and make them really sure that nothing can hurt them.
0: That's kind of a cool ability you can just suddenly do. All right.
1: The Earps and Doc Holliday march up and stand in front of the crew... Kirk puts his hand on his gun but doesn't draw, but then the lawmen open fire anyway, emptying their bullets into the crew, and who are not even remotely phased.
0: Well, I guess we don't have to die today. That's good, I guess.
1: <laughs> Kirk kicks Morgan and hits him to the ground. Uh, he points his gun at his head but then decides not to fire and they are suddenly back on the bridge with Chekhov.
0: So we are not on the planet then.
1: Yeah, never were.
0: I guess uh, at past a certain point, everyone just kind of was in a fantasy world.
1: They do that a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Chekhov doesn't remember anything except that there was a girl there, which they decide probably saved him because he was, I guess, too horny to die.
0: So said distractions.
1: (laughs) They probably never left the bridge in the first place. The probe that they were next to blows up and then suddenly the melcot from earlier appears and goes hey you didn't kill anybody are you all like this and kirk goes yeah we're here to talk to you about how much we don't kill people and then melka goes oh cool welcome in then good job
0: okay then i guess that go away never uh, enter our our space thing is only a temporary warning
1: and the end we're done here the end <laughs>
0: yes <laughs> uh don't forget the harmonica sounds
1: Oh, wow, this was very silly and dumb. Yes. <laughs> silly.
0: So um, I think the first thing I want to mention is that the, uh, the the gunfight at the OK Corral didn't actually take place in the OK Corral.
1: No, it took place about two streets down in front of a photography store, if I'm remembering right. Uh guess the gunfight at the photography store next to the OK Corral doesn't sound as good. <laughs>
0: You know, it's, it doesn't have that enough Western mystique to it. So you know,
1: Also, it was a weird personal vendetta between the Earp brothers and the Clayton gang who were known as the Cowboys. Mm-hmm. And the Earps were later arrested for murdering because you just shot a bunch of people. They were later cleared yeah. when it was decided that they were within their legal rights to do murdering because uh, Morgan Earp was, in fact, a federal marshal for the territory.
0: The uh, and like uh, the, the other his brothers there were sort of like uh, I don't want to uh, deputized or something like that by him. Is that correct? Or am I think remembering this? Correctly? I think
1: they were deputized or something similar. The laws from that time period around gunfighting were fairly weird,
0: weird and lax.
1: Though it's certainly the, uh, uh, like a lot of towns in this era in this area, which I actually grew up not too far from Tombstone in Phoenix, which is like it's a bit north north of there but tombstone is like a place you can go still there the the idea that this lawless west whatever expansion myth area exists um most towns in this area in this time period actually didn't allow guns Mm -hmm. like at all you'd have to check your gun at the border so there wasn't a bunch of like random gunfighting in the streets and Whatever saloon draws and all these weird things, it was it was not at all like the movies.
0: Yeah, and indeed, uh, part of the uh, justification that they uh, that the, the Arps used for against the uh, the the Claytons there was that the Claytons were violating this particular law in the uh, in the uh, in the town. There, it's like they didn't give uh, you know give up their guns, so uh... <laughs> so we're gonna cause a tussle. And what I found.
1: Somewhat interesting about this episode, it's just mildly interesting. I don't think this episode has a lot of things that it's saying about the world, except for nonviolence is good, I suppose, but they just yell it a few times and don't actually do anything to demonstrate what's happening.
0: You know, uh, I-, I kick you and punch you a few times, then say violence is bad. <laughs>
1: But what's interesting when you're dealing with something like this, especially these old Western like sci-fi episodes, and specifically this one that's dealing with something like the shootout at the OK Corral, which is fairly well known because of several movies and things, is we're about four myths deep at this point. Indeed. You have the original thing that happened, that we have historical records of, but even those historical records aren't very complete because newspapers at the time, which is where we'd be drawing a lot of this information from, had no qualms about uh, picking sides in these things and were highly editorialized.
0: Indeed. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's mostly from the uh, view of the survivors in this case. Yeah, there
1: weren't any particular laws about uh, you know journalistic neutrality. So... We have that. Then, as soon as uh, Wyatt Earp died, they published a biography about him. Someone who knew published a biography that was highly fictionalized, and the Earp brothers themselves fictionalized their own stories. They were like famous for making up things about themselves to be able to sell their own image.
0: Indeed. So uh, they're they're kind of like early publicists for themselves. <laughs> yeah.
1: There's there's just all these little. They were trying to become kind of the mythologized western figures like we had from like you know davy crockett and other sort of living american myth legends including this idea that wyatt earp was never struck by a bullet in his entire life despite being in multiple gunfights which is completely untrue he was shot several times
0: just never mentioned it and uh if anyone asks say it didn't happen (laughs)
1: So you had that, and then you had a very fictionalized biography that was then later used and further fictionalized to make the early adaptations of the Gunfight at the OK Corral movies. And then by the time you hit that, you're dealing with like three different half-remembered stories that are then written into this episode that is also itself like mythologized and made up to try to push their own message.
0: It's a uh, very elaborate game of telephone going on here.
1: Yeah, basically. Except every single time, you get more and more mythologizing of the Western experience, which was already mythologized.
0: You know, uh, you know the the Western experience was kind of also mythologized during that time period as well, because there's uh, you know the the folks you know out east you know getting their uh, their their Wild West show uh, entertainment going on, and they're like, oh, this is totally how things are right now, and that wasn't true at all. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the Wild West show made famous by Buffalo Bill Cody uh, with his traveling exhibition of Western stuff traveled all around the East. Uh, The Manifest Destiny idea had happened a bit earlier, but you had this kind of Western expansion myth and the kind of mythical idea of the frontier and the wide open spaces that was very specifically cultivated in order to sell the idea of Western expansion to undesirable poor people living in the East.
0: It's like, oh, if you go out there, you'll become self-reliant, you'll be, you know, a, a strong-jawed, uh, you know, uh, uh, fully independent and capable uh, uh, frontiersman, and you'll you kick all sorts of uh, butt, and, you know, you'll, you'll win all the ladies' hearts, and you'll do all this cool stuff. And yeah, none of this is made up for sure, right?
1: Yeah, it's just all, hey, yeah, look at all these cool paintings and things. Like even even art from this time period, Western art, not later Western art, which anyone who lives in the West is very familiar with right now. Usually lots of paintings of Native Americans and bronze statues of horses, Uh, but I digress. So, uh, Western art from this period, the kind of uh, sublime landscapes that they were painting, including, like, there's there's paintings of mountains that are, like, combining four different landmarks that you can only see from different sides of the mountain, and these wide-open space things. Like, that was used specifically to try to sell this idea of moving out west, and there wasn't any particular reason to do it except for there were a couple of political things. They were trying to like get rid of some of the population that they didn't want in the East. As we said, they were trying to claim territory that had already been claimed by Spain and Mexico, which is the entire Arizona area was Mexico until they just said, no, it's not
0: there. The, uh, you know, there's a whole like California kind of becoming independent. It's like, Oh, we're actually part of the U S now. Yeah. I'm just sort of, hand wave things away <laughs> and all
1: that was to secure southern uh railroad routes that bypass a few large mountain ranges in that area because you had a <laughs> southern railroad company that was trying to expand through what is now southern arizona but was at, at the time territories of mexico that was in direct competition with a northern railroad line that was taking a similar route up through the oregon sort of area
0: so uh you know people trying to make money here so I guess we have to make sure that we, you know, grab all this territory and how are we going to do that? Well, if we just have our people show up, then it works out, right?
1: Yeah, there's entire families in this is something that's come up politically recently with a lot of the kind of anti-immigration sentiment that we're dealing with. Now, there's entire towns in Arizona where you they are like referred to as immigrant populations because they're. You know, descended of people who were born in Mexico, but no one in the family ever moved. They just lived in that town, and then it later became the United
0: States. So the the U.S. immigrated to the area, not the other way around.
1: Because all of the territory, specifically around Tombstone, was just annexed. That's what the entire Mexican American War was about.
0: Yeah, there was you know some you know treaty stuff and some you know tactical purchases, but there was also a lot of fighting. So yeah.
1: Now, I'm sure there's been essays and essays and essays written about this, but I didn't have the time to find anything particularly definitive. But they have a, it's an interesting idea of this particular era where the Western was kind of the king. The Western movie was the box office draw of this time period. And the Western TV show, as we've seen with all these uh, guest stars we've been getting in Star Trek episodes, was just everything on television. You had the Western myth that we know today was based on these earlier westward expansion manifest destiny ideas, but was fully codified in the 1950s and sixties by this kind of movie and TV.
0: It's, uh, I guess in some ways it's like taking the nostalgia, uh, you know, for the earlier stories and then sort of like, well, we have this new medium, so we're going to reinvent it. And, you know, in order to, uh, Get everyone sort of roped roped in here, and you know, enjoying basically ten thousand copies of the same thing.
1: And that's all, you know, strong man, self reliant white dude who can fend for himself with nothing but his gun. Which is a very boring story for me personally, but
0: it's not. It's okay. It's like, well, you've kind of heard this one story, and now you've heard most of them. And the the exceptions are, it's because like, oh, it's like a lady this time, or you know. Something like that, yeah.
1: And this episode specifically, I feel like, is blatantly drawing the contrast that everyone says is an original series of Star Trek. And I guess I'm not as familiar with some of the other Western stuff, but the whole idea with, like, other TV of this era is you would have a group of people or a singular strongman person basically go into a town encounter a bunch of problems and shoot and threaten everyone until the problems go away. Um... And the basic idea that you hit with Star Trek, or at least the idea outlined and later codified in uh, Next Generation, is that instead of rolling up and just shooting everyone, you're supposed to come in and talk about what to do and deal with the situation peacefully. And it's an interesting one in this because as peaceful, they do not kill anyone, but the whole peaceful message is somewhat undercut by the number of times Kirk grabs someone, throws them against the wall, and starts yelling in their face
0: like, I want to be peaceful, damn it! Ah. So yeah, it's, it's trying to do something, but it's kind of not pulling it off well.
1: Not particularly. And I think it's a weird one for me, just to go on a slight tangent with that, because I've go been ahead. seeing a lot of people talking about Star Trek recently. We had a couple of the new series. It's a big internet topic right now. And Mm -hmm. everyone's talking about how amazing the original series was, and I'm not going to deny that it changed the TV landscape in some pretty significant ways. But the thing that it didn't do was have episodes where everyone sat around and talked about what to do and discussed the moral implications of the things that they were going to do.
0: There was maybe a few attempts occasionally, but they usually get kind of brushed aside or something happens so it becomes moot.
1: Occasionally. Most of the thing is we come in and go, it, it's, it's that Zat Brannigan quote from Futurama. It's like ever since we met people with a different language and way of doing things, we wanted to kill them so we didn't have to learn their their language or way of doing things.
0: That sounds like Zapp Brannigan, yes.
1: And that's exactly what they do in every episode of this show, including the start of this one is we've encountered a new culture who told us specifically to leave them alone. And then we went in anyway, because what we want is better than what they want.
0: Reminded of a next generation episode. I I, I don't remember the ex- uh, exact name for it, but uh, it's the one where there's like a pre-warp civilization that's basically on the cusp of, you know, becoming a, a warp capable. And there's some plot involving, like, I think it was a, a record that got you know lost on the planet surface. Uh, and, you know, one of the aliens uh, is, is brought up to uh, you know visit Picard to sort of get all this sorted out, and you know, and he's like, you know, so what if we tell you to go away and never return? And then Picard says, "Then we will go away and never return." Bit of contrast there <laughs> versus the classic series,
1: because the the classic series, for everything that I will agree, it was trying to do, and some of the themes that it did bring in, like it it does seem silly to us now, but just you know having non-white people running around on television in an unremarked upon way was incredibly groundbreaking for the time. Indeed. And a lot of the stories that they were telling that said, hey, we shot everyone, but maybe we shouldn't have, was pretty different from the glorification of shooting everyone that they had another TV.
0: Indeed.
1: But it was still in an era that was full-on pushing... America is the best. We have to defeat communism in the East. Every, like, nothing else in the world matters. And if we have to roll in and bulldoze over a small country to prevent communism, we are going to do it, and it's going to be good.
0: There's some limitations, in other words, that they were kind of dealing with that just were so pervasive that it's almost impossible to look past.
1: Yeah, it's it's... We want to be nonviolent, but we also have to do colonialism. We just have to. There's no other option. What do you want us to do? Respect someone else's culture? They might make a bad decision because they're dumber than us because they're another
0: culture. They might not want to trade with us. That, that's just the worst.
1: What if our banana company can't grow cheaply on their land whilst simultaneously starving their citizens?
0: that's just the worst man come on we can't allow this this injustice this you know violation of our our right to exploit the locals so yeah (laughs) the other
1: thing i really could not figure out from this episode and this is more of a storytelling thing than any actual you know philosophical point how are are we supposed to think that they think any of this is real Because they have the whole turnaround at the end. It's like, what if none of this is real? It's like, what if the obviously fake place you are in is fake? Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that.
0: I I guess maybe there's different levels of real you can sort of discuss. Because there's like just all in your mind, not real. There's uh, like a holodeck sort of not real where if the safeties are off, you can still get uh, uh, killed. But if they're on, then you're probably going to be okay. Uh, and then there's the the not real as in these are all actors and this place is the these events are still happening. It's just all a, uh, a pretext to sort of have these things going on. And so I guess they're maybe trying to drift between these different sort of perspectives here. And they just kind of near the end is like, oh, I guess it is just the completely in your mind one. But this feels so real that we need some help, I guess.
1: It's kind of interesting to go for. That it's all in your mind, and if you believe that things in your mind hurt you, they can hurt you. We do have some evidence for this. Uh, there's a lot of placebo-slash-nocebo effect research, which is basically that if you believe something strongly enough, it can have a physiological effect on you. Now, you're not going to die of a gunshot wound that you thought you took. But you can get knocked out, which is why I thought it was in, it was really interesting that Scotty didn't get knocked out even though he thought he was going to be knocked out, when that's definitely something you can do. Like, if if you expose someone to an inert gas but have convinced them that it's going to knock them out, there's a pretty good chance they may pass out.
0: Yeah, it's like, oh, well, I guess, but it's time for me to pass out now. You, know, and you, you sort of become uh, prepared for this to be the outcome. And then... When any sort of stimulus at all, even if it's a completely imagined happens, then your body sort of reacts as it is expected to react.
1: Yeah, you can see this in all kinds of things. Like People have been given sugar pills and like told they do a certain thing. It is, it is the entire reason that we developed double-blind placebo-based studies in medicine, is to get around this. Because so much of the effect of any medication you take is going to be the placebo effect.
0: Indeed, in so, some
1: cases, it can be up to seventy percent of the effectiveness of the drug.
0: It's pretty wild. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this uh, sort of a quick aside. Uh, this uh, placebo effect does remind me of one of my, uh, uh, you know, I guess, uh, favorite random scenes in a, uh, a book I've re- read. Uh, is from the the Golden Globe. I forget the name of the author, um, but the guy is. Basically, I guess, hitchhiking sort of across the solar system. And he gets his uh, himself a little, like, oxygen bubble tent uh, on the outside of a spaceship at one point. And he's like, okay, so it's going to be, like, two months before we reach our destination. I only have enough food and water for, like, five days here. But if I enter a hibernation state, I'm going to make it. Oh, no, this is not the hibernation pills. It's aspirin. I'm going to pretend it's hibernation pills. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's kind of ambiguous if like the one he pulled out was just the aspirin and the other ones are actually were real. Cause he takes several of them throughout the trip, but uh, he, he barely makes it. He has a bad time. though. <laughs> I
1: mean, you can kind of will yourself into that kind of hibernation. There's a bunch of unclear stuff. There's like, I've seen reports of people being able to slow their heart rates way down in meditative states and things. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of this stuff that's who knows what's hypocryphal and what's not, and what's some random half trickery. There's supposedly a group of um, for lack of a better term, I've heard them called monks who live near the Himalayas that can go out into the freezing cold and make and put themselves in wet blankets and then just concentrate enough on raising their body temperature that they're fine and they kind of like steam the blankets up.
0: Yeah, I was uh, just thinking about that uh so I was trying to remember what, what show that was like featuring that but it was sort of like yeah, when well, no science doesn't understand this sort of thing.
1: And there's some of that that's like who knows, like we just haven't tested it enough, but some of that I mean you do have a weird amount of impact on what your body does because it's not really that separate. Some of it like maybe it's some sort of weird trickery or something else is going on but some of it you could just be, you probably can raise your body temperature by thinking about it hard enough if you should want to
0: indeed you know just the you know the, the training of the mind to get there is a little more complicated than just sort of think this and it'll happen but
1: yeah well some of it depends they've they've done a lot of studies on this kind of thing and like if you are treated well when you are in a hospital and you're treated like you're going to recover and the doctors and everyone around you is nice to you, you have a significantly higher recovery rate than if you were exactly the same situation and disease, but you're treated badly and not told that you're getting better and you feel like you're going to be getting worse.
0: I've had it several times uh, throughout my life where just seeing a doctor and having them not like be dismissive or something like that this made me feel generally much better than I had been when I, you know, came into the place. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Which we should be doing better stuff with that in medicine because it's really easy to do and we know it has incredibly significant impacts on whether people improve or not. Of course, like there is always a danger that once you get too far into placebo ideas that you're going to like that people are going to try to take things as placebos and not seek other forms of medical attention but yeah, the placebos know. can have a very significant impact there are reports of uh, people who were in you know double blind studies whose like cancer tumors reduced by something like 70 or 80% and then later they found out that they were on the placebo pill and they came back at that point
0: That's pretty impressive, actually, yeah.
1: (laughs) Now, these are some few and far between things. This doesn't always happen. It's not 100%, but, you know, if you can give someone a sugar pill and possibly reduce their tumor size by 80%, why wouldn't you?
0: Like, make sure you're doing other things, but, yeah.
1: The other interesting thing that they discovered very recently with placebos is they used to think that you could possibly use them for these things, that it would be immoral because you can't trick people like that in medicine. It's bad. You shouldn't you know you can't tell someone you're giving them a drug that you're not giving them it's it's unethical but uh they recently have done several studies that f- discovered that the placebo effect still works if you tell someone that you're giving them a placebo
0: it's kind of wild
1: so, <laughs> so it's an entire new sort of realm of medicine that hasn't been fully uh utilized yet but you can do that you can say like hey you know here's what we can do for your you know cancer treatments also we're going to give you this pill that doesn't have any actual medication but we have found can you know have this pronounced effect which is all true
0: <laughs> yeah i just kind of we just know it works we don't know how but you know
1: <laughs> so it it's one of those things that i've always thought about like we have medications and especially in something like you know psychiatric medication antidepressants and that kind of thing we have medications that have such significantly negative side effects. In the realm of something like that, like there's some there are some psychiatric medications where the placebo effect is like 90 something percent of their of their effect. The the difference between the like placebo group and the non-placebo group is sometimes like two to three percent effectiveness in however they're measuring this. So if you have a difference of like one or like you know one to three percent effectiveness in a pill and one has significant negative side effects and the other one is nothing, which one would you choose to take?
0: Probably the the one with less side effects. There are people that would say the opposite.
1: Yeah, and it should be a choice if you want it. I would never say that we shouldn't give people something that they would want. A two percent increase in effectiveness on something like that could be incredible for someone.
0: Yeah, you know, if you're going from, you know, you know, feeling better but still incapable of, you know, living an everyday life that you want to have, to being able to manage that with that two or three percent, yeah, go for it.
1: But to me it does feel like if you're we're giving people medications that we flat out know are reducing their life expectancy by up to twenty years in a lot of these cases. So it does feel mm-hmm. like maybe we should move over to trying the one that doesn't do that first.
0: Yeah. If this doesn't work, then we'll try the, you know, the more, uh, more side effect prone one. But if it does work, then maybe we're good to go.
1: So that's my soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. But in medicine and in a lot of things, especially if you're in medicine or anything related, or even just generally giving someone a good environment where they feel supported and cared about can be, you know, more than half of what makes someone better.
0: Yeah, if people are feeling uh, you know, comfortable, then they're more likely to like, not strain. And if they're not straining, they're going to be you know, keeping their body in a state of heightened anxiety. And if their body's not in a state of constant heightened anxiety, they're going to be more able to uh, you know, have their natural processes react in a very uh, sort of natural way that isn't you know, being sort of hampered by all this external stress. So yeah, the athletic stress.
1: <laughs> Hi, that was basically everything I had for this, because this is a very light, light on idea episode.
0: Um, I think you had up most of mine as well, I guess. Um, I guess maybe there's still the 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 questionable ethics of an alien race that puts people through this sort of f- trial, I guess.
1: I mean, it's not even it's. Difficult to know whether it was supposed to be a trial or if it's just a thing that they use to say "stay out of our danged borders."
0: Yeah, <laughs> a a way to dissuade people once they sort of get past a certain level. Uh, it's like, okay, this probe's going to figure out who the uh, leading people of this vessel are, and we're going to give them a group hallucination that will allow them allow us to you know convince them to go away. That they'll wake up a few hours later, their ship. Hopefully, going the opposite direction, or you know, they're going to be you know, and, and they'll be too fearful to come over here. And
1: there are a lot. There is a particular philosophical debate to be had over border sovereignty and the idea of like national citizenship as it applies to various laws and things. But we generally agree with the way that we act now around nation states that respecting someone else's borders is a good thing. Except in this case, when you're trying to like. I don't think that you can have this art. You can't like roll up with what is in fact a heavily armed military vehicle and go into the person's borders and go like, "But we wanted to talk to you about peace."
0: Well, I'm trying to remember the exact line here, but yeah, you know, a lot of people from your planet have you know you know gone around claiming they're about peace and then taking over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess maybe the questionable ethics thing for me is. The, they're taking something specifically from Kirk's mind. Uh, so they're, you know, it, for his viol- attempting to violate their border there, they're violating his mind in return. And that still seems kind of like a jerk move to me, but given the circumstances, I guess I could let it slide.
1: Probably. And I think we can't really necessarily say on that if we're dealing with this at face value, because if you're dealing with a race that, is telepathic and can see and do each other's thoughts anyway, they probably have a much different idea of what constitutes personal boundaries than we do.
0: Uh, in fact, uh, other star Trek, uh, you know, I remember an episode, the next generation where there was some telepathic aliens. They had, you know, had to be, had to learn the concept of privacy that not everyone they're going to meet is going to be an open book. So, you know, sort of you have to, they have to sort of learn to respect that because it just is such a foreign concept for them. But that's later Star Trek.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, before we get too far on to later Star Trek, then I think that it's finally time for the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. Woo-hoo!
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. Our various contestants have been racking up a few points this week. And let's start with uh, the sufficiently advanced aliens prize here, which goes to the Melcotts, maybe, or was this all just psychic trickeries through some unknown means? What do they win, Gepwin? The
1: Melkots get a no soliciting poster, which may be more effective than just a probe that transports people to some mental version of the old west, or possibly a beware of space dog.
0: <laughs> ah, I, I, I am a big fan of beware of space dogs. Also, space parrots. You have to watch out for those. Our second uh, uh, prize is the TV Love Story Prize, which goes to Chekhov and Sylvia for their obviously doomed love affair. What do they win, Gebwin?
1: Chekhov gets another one of those misconduct investigations for kissing someone when they think that they're someone else in a case of mistaken identity, which is still a little skeevy. Now, whether or not this person actually existed is another matter. He was very okay with this.
0: Yeah, Chekov, you're maybe you need to like take a step back from this thing that you're experiencing and go, is this the right thing to do, Chekov? Anyway, our last uh, prize is the Become Neo Neo Prize here, which goes to Kirk Company for using the powers of disbelieving to overcome being shot. Uh, thank you, Spock. What do they win, one
1: On the tradition of Neo and the Matrix, I think Kirk and Company get really cool '90s sunglasses. Oh, sweet. Which, if I'm reading look. the recent Star Trek memes correctly, become all the rage in the Federation by the time we hit Picard.
0: Excellent. The uh, future's so bright you to have to wear shades. Take us away, Gapwood.
1: As <laughs> yes, thank to all of our contestants for joining us, or were they really here, or just in their minds on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show? Ooh.
0: Capwin, I have a secret. Yes? I was not here the entire time.
1: This is a projection of my mind. (laughs) Or possibly me doing a silly voice.
0: Yes. Uh, And uh, clearly all the listeners are are, are experiencing this group hallucination with you, so uh, I guess that means everyone has violated someone's borders then. Yes. Makes total sense now. So...
1: (laughs) And the next episode is uh, one of the more famous sea ones. I think it's got Klingons.
0: Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That
1: thats called The Day of the Dove.
0: Wait, do Klingons have doves?
1: Probably got some sort of Tarkazian dove or something. <laughs> they call a dove, but is actually some sort of giant bird of prey that carries off soldiers in the middle of battles.
0: But only in the middle of battles. But Klingons have a lot of those, that so it a, a Klingon often. dove! <laughs> <laughs> I guess we have to stop fighting now. <laughs> Otherwise we're all going to die.
1: I don't know anything about this one. It's supposed to be mildly more racist than some of the other Klingon episodes from what I've heard.
0: Uh-oh. Features Kang.
1: Reading something about... Uh, Klingons fighting Chekhov because he killed his brother. Hmm. Yeah, Kang. Is this, this another appearance of Kang, or is this all the... He didn't show up before. This is like the main three, ain't it? Kang, Kodos, yep. and us?
0: Yeah, the uh, the three Klingon bros, I guess. Yeah, hmm. the
1: three <laughs> the, uh
0: That show up in uh, Blood Oath in uh, Deep Space Nine. Uh, Kor is the third one. There we are. Kor, there we are. Kor, Kang, and Koloth.
1: Anyway, I don't know much about this one, though the episode after this one is based on my favorite book. What's your favorite book? Orphans of the Sky.
0: Orphans of the Sky. Pebble in the Sky is Asimov. Uh, not familiar with Orphans, though. Orphans of the Sky is Heinlein. Heinlein.
1: The universe was five miles long and 2,000 feet across. Hmm,
0: it's pretty small. That description reminds me of a role playing game setting.
1: But anyway, that's for uh, that's The World is Hollow and I have touched the sky. But next week we're dealing with Klingons in Day of the Dove on Watchers of Tomorrow.
0: Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, an alien that loves the dark side of the force. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbeam, YouTube, Spotify iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Izix, on youtube.com slash Dr and Twitter, at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Morris Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists.